announcing uh, uh, with District Church. So uh, we're looking forward to a, a lot of partnerships and reunions. Uh, we've got close to six weeks uh, before we will uh, officially be uh, joining together in our services. And uh, so late October, first, uh, last uh, Sunday in October is our, our plan. And so we've got some big Big plans, and we're excited. We had a vision dinner here last Sunday night. We expected about 150 people, uh, close to 320 people showed up, and the place was packed, and we shared our vision for uh, the church partnership moving forward, uh, both CJ and myself. Uh, I think I'll refer to myself as CJ from now on, just everywhere I go, just to, you know, uh, confuse people or, or bring unity, whatever. And um, we both uh, are just blown away by some of the responses. Uh, over $100,000 has come in in the last like month uh, from people who are selling property, selling boats, uh, who are generously uh, giving. At the vision dinner, I had a couple people come up to me and say, I'm in for $10,000, so I'll write you the check tomorrow. And, and so people are excited about what we can potentially accomplish as a church together up here on the hill, the campus on the hill. And so uh, right now we're basically just uh, saying we have two campuses, one at Oak Ridge in which they have just started their service uh, as well as, as we have. We both meet at 10, 9 and 10.30, the same service times. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, synergy and momentum as we move forward. We asked you last week to check in on Facebook and for every check-in, uh, we would donate $5. We got 96 of you who checked in. Uh, so now for the hurricane relief, we've raised over $10,000 combined as two churches in a matter of like two weeks. And this goes all through September. Every time you check in on Facebook on either Lake Hills Facebook page or district, which will be basically one in the same very soon, uh, $5 will go from our church to uh, hurricane relief. All you do is you just check in. And, uh, and so we anticipate several more thousands of dollars that will go to both Hurricane Harvey and to Irma. Uh, you know, and I've heard in, in uh, Texas, they're still uh, underwater. A lot of these homes are still underwater and uh, people are just, just kind of waiting for the, uh, the water to recede. And so it's, it's dramatically impacted uh, thousands and thousands of people. And we want to be a church that, uh, that conveys our, our love and our care in Jesus' name. Well, we are in the midst of a series. Uh, it is a series in Genesis. And so uh, we are going to pick up where we left off. But I'm going to do a, a, just a, a slight little recap from last week. So I just fast forwarded last week's little sketch. By the way, these sketches that you see up here as I introduce uh, our, 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 our Bible uh, passages from Genesis comes from the Bible Project. There's a lot of good stuff online, uh, thebibleproject.org. The and so that's where I get this. I did not draw this myself. I did not make this up. Uh, this is all from uh, a, a guy who actually was part of a skate ministry called Skate Church in Portland. Uh, and he was just loving on kids, uh, 70, 80 kids coming to skate uh, and, and then do Bible studies. And this guy went to seminary and then he started doing the Bible Project. So now his ministry impact has broadened uh, online. So uh, let's get uh, you started with, once again, as we did last week, an overview uh, of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. 
So in summary from last week, uh, Genesis is a story that divides into two main parts. God takes disorder and brings beauty and goodness. He makes humans in his image. He blesses them. He gives them a choice. And the snake challenges God's word and they fall for the trap. They eat the fruit and life is never the same. Men and women lose trust. They feel guilt and they hide. But by God's grace, God promises a wounded victor will come to redeem them. But the consequences of the human decisions are not erased. And so that takes us to our next section. There's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain is so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does so anyway. He murders him in the field. And then Cain goes and builds a city where violence and oppression reign. It's all epitomized by the story of Lamech, the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And he goes on to sing a short song about he is more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. And after this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claim they descended from gods like Lamech. They acquire many wives as as much as they wanted. They produce the Nephilim, which are great warriors of old, humans that are building kingdoms and fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. Well, in response, we're told that God is broken with grief and humanity is ruining his good world. They're ruining each other. And so out of passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family. And he commissions him as a new Adam and he repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes get really high, but then Noah fails in a garden once again and he goes and he plants a vineyard and he gets drunk and one of his sons Ham does something shameful to his father in the tent and so here we are we have a new Adam naked and ashamed just like the first and the downward spiral begins again and it leads to the foundation of a city called Babylon the people of ancient Mesopotamia they come together around this new technology called the brick and they make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before and they want to build a new kind of tower that reaches up to the gods and they'll make a great name for themselves it's an image of human rebellion and arrogance it's the garden rebellion all over and God humbles their pride and he scatters them now in this uh, diverse group of stories but you could see they're all basically exploring the same thing is that God keeps giving humans the chance to do right and then they keep ruining it and so they we the claim is that we live in a good world but we've turned it bad and we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves and we all contribute to this world of broken relationships leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death but there's hope that one day a descendant will come a wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And despite of humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and to rescue his world. And so the big question is, of course, what is God going to do? And and how is he going to bring this wounded victor? And the, the hinge between the two parts in Genesis is between the chapters 1 and 11 and chapters 12 and 50, where the call of Abraham, God's rescue mission once again, begins. And so we see that in Genesis, it's not very, it doesn't shed a very positive light on human nature. 
and that we tend to take what God brings us and gives us and we just mess it up. And yet God is constantly faithful, constantly rescuing. He is, the whole story of the Bible, in fact, is a redemption, rescuing story. And so as we look at our uh, verse today, our our chapter 3 in verse 8, we see that uh, the first problem is simply that the man and his wife and They heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is after they'd taken the fruit and they'd rebelled against God. And then what did they do? They hid. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so then it goes on to say that God goes searching because he's a rescuing God. He's determined to bring grace and bring healing in everything he does. And it says, the Lord God called to man, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. I was naked and so I hid. You know, I was... Uh, I swim in the, at, the, at the club here in town, and I, I, that's, that's all I do. I hate biking. I hate running. It just is too painful for me. And so I've always been a swimmer, so I played water polo. And so swimming kind of is my go-to thing when I want to exercise. And so uh, I swim with the master's group here. And so, you know, we've got a, a, a regular crew with us. And then every once in a while, we'll get kind of new people that will jump in and um, and so this guy, this guy comes and he's a, he's a good swimmer and he, he jumps into my lane and I kind of, you know, just, just meet him real quickly and then we're swimming, you know, you're underwater the whole time. And, and so then like the, the, the next day I'm over at Safeway and uh, I'm grabbing some stuff and, and I, th- I think I see the same guy who I just met, you know, the day before. And, and so he was in line at Jamba Juice, and, and so I see him, and he kind of sees me, and I'm like, oh, oh, hey, Joe, you know, and he's like, oh, Chris, hey, and he's like 20 feet away, and there's a line at Jamba Juice and some people around, and he, and he yells, kind of yells out to me, he's like, oh, hey, Chris, yeah, I, I didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> You know, the guy in front of him is like looking back. <laughs> totally awkward. <laughs> you know, and, and then we just sort of right away, like we knew what we were talking about, but then we just figured out what potentially everyone else was thinking. <laughs> but that whole idea of the, the shame of being naked. You know, when little kids run around naked in, the, in their house, you know, they're totally free. They're unencumbered. It's like there's no guilt. There's no shame. And Adam and Eve, they were naked and they were ashamed. They were ashamed and they felt guilty. And it wasn't just because they were naked. It was because they had disobeyed God. And so God says, where are you? Now, it isn't because God needs information, right? God is Uh, all-knowing. Omniscient is the theological term. He knows everything. So when God asks a question, it's always rhetorical, right? Because he knows the answer, but he's, what does he want? He wants a confession. Where are you? And and to Adam's credit, you know, he says, I'm hiding. I'm hiding because I'm afraid and I'm ashamed. And so he tells God, he says, I, 
I'm naked, we're naked, we're ashamed, and we're hiding. You know, it's interesting because God didn't say, why did this happen? You know, sometimes that's as parents, you know, your kids blow it or something. You, you ask all these questions like, you know, well, why did you do this? And, and why did this happen? Or, or how did this happen? God didn't say, like, how did this happen? He didn't say, why did this happen? He's, he didn't say, you know, okay, what, what do we need to do to fix this? His question was a question of, of proximity. Where are you? Where are you? And I think the same question can be posed to us today. Because really what it comes down to is, where are you in light of or in relationship with God? Where are you? Where are you? Now, frankly, you know, if you're not feeling close to God, it's not because God has gone somewhere. Do you understand? It's the same as the garden. You know, we tend to run. We tend to hide. We tend to move away from our center, the center of all of life, which comes from the creator who is the author of life. And so his question for Adam is the same as the question that he has for us. Where are you? You see, uh, in Psalm 130, David, 139, David got it right. Because he said, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. You or such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You see, God didn't ask what are you doing? He didn't say, how did this happen? He didn't say, why did this happen? He asked one question. He says, where are you? And so my question for you today is, where, where are you? You see, as we shared in this vision dinner last Sunday, and as we are moving ahead as two churches, we're on a mission, and we're going to be aggressively and urgently calling people to ask that question, where are you? Because our mission is going to be to share the life-giving message of Jesus with you, with your family, and with those who are far off. And may I suggest, and what I suggest we all begin to learn, and as perhaps some of us might need to shift our thinking, is I think Jesus is very, very concerned with those who are far off. Because there's a lot of people that are hiding from God. And so our church and our, the mission of this church is to go after them, just like Jesus went after that lost sheep. He told that parable to describe his heart and his compassion and his desire to reach people who are far from God. And that's what we as District Lake Hills, that's what we are going to be about God's business doing. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray to the Lord that he sends out workers into the harvest field. And Jesus said, look at the fields. They're ripe. 
They're ripe, people, the, the ripe, they're so ripe, they're falling off the trees and they're rotting and they're dying and they need a savior, they need a friend, they need hope for their lives. And so we, as a church, are gonna be about the business of reaching those who are far from God. And we're gonna be saying, where are you? Where are you? You see, the first uh, purpose that we have in this mission that we're about is number one, to help people to know God, to know God. And that question of where are you is the first question that we want to ask everyone. Where are you spiritually? Where is God in your life? One time uh, someone approached me on a college campus with a video camera and uh, they knew what they were doing. I didn't know what they were doing. And the first question they said, where is God right now? And I think they even specifically said, where is Jesus? And what they were doing was they were just simply asking people where they thought God was. And I didn't know how to respond because I wasn't with God, walking with God. I was hiding from God at that particular time in my life. And so I was confronted, yet I'll never forget that, 25 years ago. Because it was the question that we are going to be asking people to confront because it's an important question. Where are you? God isn't going anywhere. He has not left you. And I understand it's natural for us in the, in the midst of hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. To, and when there's death and there's evil and there's, there's dying, the question we say, God, where are you? He's right in the middle and he's right there. And I think God, he understands our pain. He understands our grief. But he's asking us, where are you? Where are you? Because he is calling us to run right into the center of his will. There's no safer place to be than in the middle of God's will. Regardless of what happens to you on this earth. There's no safer place to be in the middle of God's will. And unfortunately, people are running and they are far from God. And so our first purpose, our first mission statement here as a church, as we partner together and move ahead is help people that are far off to know God to know God. And secondly, and I'll just focus on these two, there's, there's two more, there's four total. But secondly, uh, we want to help people to find freedom, to find freedom. You see, because you cannot serve and do what God has called you to do and operate out of your giftings unless you're free, unless you're free. And, and what freedom means is it means that you're free from the fish hooks of your past. It means that you're free from all your yesterdays. As Paul said, I consider my past and all of the past things that I've done to try to please God in my own strength and my own efforts, according to the law, it's rubbish. He used a much stronger word that I can't even mention in church, which is ironic because it's in the Bible, uh, in the original language. But he basically said, it's all trash, it's garbage. And, and now I'm pursuing Jesus' mission for me because I want to be free from all that stuff that held me in bondage, in bondage. And there are people, do you know, that are all around us in the 42,000 people that live in El Dorado Hills and then, I mean, many, many more thousand throughout Shingle Springs and Folsom and beyond that are in bondage. That are, that are not free and they put their head on their pillow at night and they are nervous and they're anxious because they don't know what's going to happen to them when they die. 
And when they start asking deep questions, why am I here? What's the reason for my existence? They can't answer those questions. And so they're nervous, they're anxious, they're frustrated. And so they think that, that life is found in making a, a buck or making the next deal. Or they think that it's in uh, you know, trying to pursue some kind of uh, sport or, or doing well in school or getting to the be- into the best college. And then they find out that when they reach those goals, they still have that gnawing feeling that something's missing. Do you realize, do you remember what that felt like in your life? And so there are thousands of people all around us in our neighborhoods that don't know God and haven't found freedom. And so we are on mission together to do that. How does this happen? How do people get in bondage? Well, I would suggest it's from deception. It's from uh, the deception that we find early in in the scripture in Genesis. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's he doing? He's challenging God's word. And that's where deception starts. God has told you the truth. You eat of the fruit, you will die. And when God speaks, then then it's so. That's what amen means. Amen. When you say amen at the end of a prayer, you mean may it be so. May it be truth. And God says, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. And so what does Satan do? What does the serpent do? And what he will always do? He challenges God's word. Did God really say that? Did he really say you must not eat? And the woman said, we may eat from the fruit, from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Now she should have stopped there because that's all God said. But she didn't. And we do the same thing. This is a religious thing, friends. This is a church thing. You know what we do? We add to God's word. Because God never said, you must not touch it. He never said that. But Eve said that God said, oh, and we must not touch it either. You see what that is? That's what the Pharisees did. God said, love God, love others. And then the Pharisees came up with 600 more rules. You know what turns people off more than anything is that stifling legalism, stifling rule, rule make, making that happens in the church that God never intended. He didn't say you must not touch it, but Eve just went ahead and added to God's word, you must not touch it or you will die. And then what does the serpent do? Challenges God's word again. Oh, you will certainly not die, the serpent says. And then what does he do? The lure of power, the lure of knowledge, the lure of becoming like God. That's the lie every time. When you buy a new car and it makes you feel good and you think that it's that car that brings you worth and value because when you sit in that nice leather and you're cruising down the street and this car can go faster than any car you've ever had, you know what, you know what that feeling is? That's power and that's knowledge. It's, it's the feeling of being like God. And, and there's nothing wrong with new stuff. God gives us all things to enjoy, right? But it's, the temptation is you will become like God. You will become powerful. You'll become wise. You'll become all-knowing. People will think you're important. People will like you. You'll have status. You'll be huge. You'll be big. You'll be like God. That's always the lie. Anytime you're tempted with anything, it's so that you can feed your own hole in your heart 
that only God can fill and you can find it somewhere else and make you feel like God. And so the serpent says, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is deception. It's deception. And it's always what Satan does. He always deceives. Truth is primarily the revelation of God's word, but it includes truth also in the inner self, Psalm 51. David lived a lie, and then he suffered greatly. Right? He lived a lie, and then he suffered. And when he finally found freedom, King David, he acknowledged the truth. And he said, how blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32. So we are to lay aside falsehood. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4 says. We are to come against the lies of the enemy. And we are to believe the truth. Deception is the most subtle of all the satanic strongholds. Have you ever noticed that people with addictions and addictive behaviors, they lie to themselves regularly and continuously. They're lying. The alcoholic lies about his drinking. The anorexic lies about her eating. The sex offender lies about their behavior. Lying is an evil defense prompted by the father of lies. Satan, it says in John 8, is the father of all lies. And he lies to us to try to get us to believe that we'll find strength, find power, find significance, find worth, find status in anything other than God. That's his trick. And the way that we as a church lead people to freedom, to help them know God and find freedom, is we tell the truth. We tell the truth of the word. And faith is the biblical response to truth. Believing the truth is a choice. When someone says, I want to believe God, but I just can't, they are being deceived. Of course you can believe God. Faith is something that you decide to do. It's not something you feel like doing. Believing the truth doesn't make it true. It's true, so we believe it. That's truth. Faith doesn't create reality. Faith responds to what God says is true. It's not the idea that you merely believe that counts. It's what you do with that that you believe in that really counts. Everybody believes in something. And so everybody walks by faith according to what they believe. The atheist this morning is putting their faith and trust in something. Atheists actually have more faith than I do. They really do. Because an atheist must believe that all of this happened by happenstance. That takes a lot of faith. It's like a bomb went off in the Sistine Chapel and then created the painting. That's what, that's what someone who says there is no God believes. Is that all the design, and all the intelligent design that's all around us happened by accident. It's like there's a blind watchmaker that, that made a watch. And it functions and it, and it fits and everything moves. You know, if we were any further away from the sun or the, the moon was any further away. and I mean, we would either freeze or we'd burn up. It's all by design. And so... Uh, but it's still, as Christians, we have to have faith in a good God who created it. If you only believe what you feel, you'll be led through life, through emotional impulses, and you'll be on a roller coaster ride. But we believe the truth, we walk by faith, and then your feelings will line up with the truth that you believe. When you, when you, it's what you do and how you behave. Historically, the church has found great value in believing and declaring its beliefs. The Apostle Creed, the Nicene Creed, 
for centuries. They're read aloud to affirm the faith that we believe. For example, I recognize there's one true and living God, Exodus 20. Revelation 4 says he's the sustainer and the beginner and, and the end of all things. John 1 says that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Word who became flesh. 1 John 8, he came to destroy the works of the enemy, Satan. He disarmed the rulers, Colossians said, the authorities. He made a public display of them. All these are truths by which we stand firm so that we don't get tempted and get sucked into the lies of the enemy. We are here to, to help people find freedom through the word and through the, the value of understanding the reality of who God is and his love for us. We believe by 1 John that we are children of God. We're seated with Christ, it says in Ephesians, that we're saved by grace through faith in Ephesians. We choose to believe that to be strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6, that Jesus has all authority, Matthew 28, and we believe that we can do nothing apart from Christ. Do you believe that? That, that Christ, through Christ, you can do all things, but apart from him, you can do nothing. We believe that the truth will set us free, John 8. And so to prevent deception, we need to be in God's word, and we need to read his word, and we need to believe it so that we live by it and walk by it and speak by it, and then we'll help people know God and find freedom. Those are our first two purposes uh, and we'll do the next two next week when we talk about uh, how we help people to discover their gifts and then how we help them make a difference. These are the four simple things we want to do as a church. These are four things we shared last week. And these are found in Genesis, friends. It's from the very beginning. So that we don't hide from God. And the, the God's asking the question, where are you? Where are you? Come back. And be with me. And that we believe the truth and renounce the lies so that we can experience freedom. And then we can begin to discover the gifts that God has given us to serve one another and to serve our community and serve those who are far from God. And so we'll be doing this with Growth Track. Uh, we'll be launching Growth Track in November. And I anticipate we'll get probably 40 or 50 plus people going through it as we combine. And, and this is going to be an exciting time because we're going we're to hit on these purposes. We're going to hit on these values. We're going to talk about choosing joy. We're going to talk about uh, pursuing excellence. Some of the other values that we as a community together have come to. And so I, I'm really excited about this journey that you're on with us. Uh, there will be changes, yes. Uh, the, one of the biggest changes is you're gonna, these seats are going to be packed and we'll be putting out more and more seats, 9 o'clock. Uh, but you're going to sense the critical mass. You're going to sense the energy in the room. And, and you're going to sense the excitement for doing God's work, helping people know God and find freedom to discover their purpose and to make a difference with their lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have called us to confess and to be honest that we too have shame and guilt and we mess up and, and we hide. We hide from you. You haven't gone anywhere. You're right here in our midst. And we want to uh, be with you wherever you are. Jesus, you said wherever my father is, there I am and I'm doing the work of my father day and night and we want to do the same. Help us to uh, be a part of your plan and your will and use our gifts and make an impact in this community, Lord, 
Uh, the fruit is falling off the trees and the fruit is ripe and there are people who are hungry. God, would you give us a sense of urgency once again, afresh, to see in the eyes of those who are broken, who are needy, that need Jesus Christ, that need to come to him and give us all kinds of creative ways to reach them, to speak the language they speak and to build bridges with people and not uh, create rules and regulations and all kinds of things that you never set up. You told us, love God and love others. And that's our calling, that's our purpose, that's our mission, and we wanna do that very intentionally with a sense of urgency because the days are short. So Father, we thank you for the gifts uh, that this congregation consistently gives. We thank you for the over $10,000 that we as a church together collectively have sent to hurricane relief. We thank you for our check-ins. We thank you for our tithes and offerings now. We thank you that every dollar, uh, Lord, would go to kingdom work and that would be used for your purposes uh, to create uh, opportunities for more and more people to come to you and to not run, not hide, but come home. So we bless you now in Jesus' name, amen.